You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Naomi McAreevy from University College Dublin. Her paper was entitled The Noblest Person, the Wisest Female and the Best of Wives that Ever Lived The Duchess of Ormond and Her Letters um, The letters of Elizabeth Butler and Lee Preston for Duchess of Ormond provide extraordinary insight into the life and writing of an important aristocratic Irish woman at a time of remarkable social uh, and political upheaval in the Three Kingdoms. She was the wife of James Butler, 12th Earl and 1st Duke of Ormond who is Ireland's only duke and three times its Lord Lieutenant, was a figure of considerable importance in 17th century Ireland. But far from the retiring consort of her powerful husband, his wife was a person of significant power and influence in, in her own right. Descended from the 10th Earl of Ormond, she brought a hefty portion of the Ormond estate to the marriage of, and to her second cousin. As Countess, Marchioness and Duchess of Ormond, as well as three times Viceroy and high-status courtier, she sat at the pinnacle of Irish and English society and was unmatched by any other Irish woman of the period in terms of her wealth, social standing, power and connections. Her surviving correspondence reveals her importance within the Ormond Butler family um, and in the social, cultural and political life of 17th century Ireland. The Duchess of Ormond was a prolific letter writer and the research for my edition of her writing has brought together her entire extant correspondence or at least as much of it as I've been able to find and which so far comprises more than 300 letters covering six decades. Spanning the years between her marriage in 1629 and her death in 1684, the correspondence traverses the 1641 rebellion and the wars of the Three Kingdoms, royalist exile and the Commonwealth and protectorate governments, the Restoration and beyond, and offers an important Irish female perspective um, on a key period of Three Kingdoms history. The letters illuminate the Duchess' crucial involvement in the protection and advancement of Ormond family interests during this turbulent period and reflect the changing historical circumstances as well as the fluctuating positions um, uh, of the Ormond butlers. Letters are written to her husband and family, agents and servants, friends, patrons and clients, and together they showcase her finely honed epistolary dexterity. As she responds to the ebb and flow of the family's fortunes, the Duchess's letters are variously defensive, persuasive, diplomatic, antagonistic, assertive, outraged, nonchalant, measured, elated, despondent. This is a woman who could deploy a pen um, to great effect. The overwhelming impression from the letters is of a literate, intelligent, pragmatic and resourceful woman. The history and culture of early modern Ireland is receiving a much greater scholarly attention, yet there remains a need for women's contributions to be properly excavated and understood. This is especially the case for a woman like the Duchess of Ormond, whose importance has long been recognised by Irish historians. 
There have been some attempts to raise higher the stature of the First Duchess, as Toby Bernard puts it, um, in the last 10 or 15 years, but still she has not been subjected to sustained research in her own right. Instead, her activities have um, provided footnotes and research that focuses on her husband and her letters utilised primarily for the light they shed um, on their husband's political career. Um, and of course, there are, ex- there are exceptions of that. Um, uh, the likes of John and Jane um, have been doing uh, great work on her. Instead, uh, or so, I hope to change the situation by pulling together her extant correspondence and making available a wide selection of her letters in a comprehensive scholarly edition. By attending to the Duchess rather than her husband, I hope my edition will facilitate and encourage the development of a more refined and complex view of this most important Irish couple, as well as the public and private lives of a highly significant 17th century Irish noblewoman. Um, I also hope that my edition will illuminate the fatality and material and rhetorical power um, of her epistolary life writing. So who exactly um, was the Duchess of Ormond? Um, Elizabeth Preston was born in 1615, the only child of Elizabeth Butler, sole surviving legitimate child of Thomas Butler, 10th Earl of Ormond, and Richard Preston, Baron Dingwall, later Earl of Desmond, who was a Scottish, a Scottish court noble and favourite of James VI um, and I. After the death of her maternal grandfather, the 10th Earl, her father laid claim to the Ormond title and estate in his wife's name, although he failed to obtain the earldom which was entailed in the male line, Thanks to the personal interventions of James, Preston and his wife were controversially awarded more than half of the Ormond estate at the expense of the 11th Earl, a prominent Catholic dissident. Ten years later, in October 1628, the estate was inherited by the couple's 13-year-old daughter when she was bereaved of both parents. The orphan girl was taken as a ward of the court and placed into the care of Henry Rich, 1st Earl of Holland. Plans were soon revived for her to marry her second cousin, James Butler, grandson and heir to the 11th Earl of Ormond, who had also been brought up as a Protestant after being claimed as a ward of the crown upon the death of his father and put into the care of the Archbishop of Canterbury. The couple married at Christmas 1629 and the reunification of the Ormond title and estate in Protestant hands was secured when the groom inherited the earldom in 1633. In the years that followed... The new Earl of Ormond rose from relative obscurity to become Lord Lieutenant of Ireland for the first of three times in November 1643. He commanded the King's forces in Ireland during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms and went into exile with Charles II after his defeat. During the Restoration, he was lavishly rewarded for his loyalty with an Irish dukedom and offices including the Lord Lieutenancy. Lady Ormond had also been in exile in Cayenne, France at the turn of the decade, but after her husband left Ireland, she successfully petitioned Cromwell for restitution of a portion of her inheritance and ultimately returned to Ireland to spend the last years um, of the interregnum in Dunmore House near Kilkenny. It is during um, the decade-long separation from her husband that we see the then Marchioness of Ormond emerge as a public figure in her own right, as well as a skilled and prolific um, letter writer. So... In the research um, for my edition, I have so far located 300 letters of the Duchess of Ormond, not including formal petitions. The vast majority of the letters can be found among the Ormond papers in the National Library of Ireland. Um, uh, But there is material in at least seven other locations, including the Carp papers in the Bodleian Library, Oxford. The earliest surviving um, letter um, is undated, but seems to come from about 1630, um, when the, the then by contest, Thurles was um, just 15. It was written from Acton, where she and her husband spent the early years of their marriage and is addressed to her grandfather, in fact, he was her husband's grandfather, Walter Butler, 11th Earl of Ormond. 
and she complains of the eviction of some of her late parents' tenants and intervenes in a dispute between the Earl and her paternal kin. Um, she demonstrates confidence as heiress and landlord in her own right and comes across as diplomatic and self-assured. And then the last letter, um, the last surviving letter, comes from a few weeks before the Duchess of Ormond's death at the age of 69. It was written from Hampton Court to her husband Richard, Earl of Arran in Dublin, outlining the plans for her and her husband's imminent return to Ireland. And I think it's interesting that the first and last letters look towards Ireland from England, given the central importance of the couple's Irish estates um, in the Duchess's letters overall. So sandwiched between the letters of 1630 and 1684 is a large and diverse correspondence. Um, the correspondence is addressed to 39 different recipients. For 23 of these, there is only one surviving letter. Such recipients often turn out to be extremely important figures in the Duchess's life. Um, one example is um, Anne Hume, who, as this memo um, uh, indicates, um, although you won't be able to read it, just to, to give you a size, it's kind of point after point after point. Um, which was sent uh, um, to with Anne Hume to the Restore Court. So um, Anne Hume was sent to deliver sensitive instructions to Lord Ormond at the newly restored court. So this is an incredibly important um, letter, but it's the only one that survives for Anne Hume. And actually, as it turns out, this trusted messenger had been Lady Ormond's ward um, and had remained a close friend throughout her life, eventually marrying her half-brother-in-law, um, uh, Captain George Matthew, um, in the late 1660s. But unfortunately, no other letters um, survived to Mr. Hume. There are relatively few letters to the Duchess's husband um, uh, and sons, none at all to her daughters um, and, and fellow nobles, including Elizabeth Boyle, um, Countess of Cork and Burlington. Um, and I like this letter whenever it appears <laughs> um, because it indicates um, the change of um, the exchange of medical uh, uh, remedies within elite circles and their role in strengthening and connections. Um, yeah, so uh, you'll just see from the highlighted bit, you know, she's complaining um, about the rocking by land in the worst coachway that ever I passed in coming the, um, hither and um, did much occasion my distemper together with the accident of breaking one of my shins, which my Lord Burlington was so charitable as to prescribe me a remedy for. Um, uh, God knows what that was, which proved more successful in giving me ease and minded his lordships for his hearing. Um, though I meant it as well. Um, so so um, I, I kind of like these lovely little anecdotes about that tells us something about the nature of their um, relationships. Um, the vast majority of the Duchess's letters are addressed to her agents and servants. A particularly significant example is a single letter to Lady Ormond's servants, um, Stephen Smith, which is buried among the Ormond papers. Um, it's, hugely, uh, it's a hugely important document because it provides unique evidence of the elite networks in which Lady Ormond operated during the interregnum. It's striking because she says, um, uh, tell my husband to visit these people, those persons of quality that were um, particularly kind and friendly to me. And this is from 1660. And then she lists um, uh, eight or nine um, uh, elite women. Um, uh, who, and this is really the only evidence that we have um, that that uh, relationship existed, and with the exception of the likes of, um, of Lady Randall and a few others. And I won't go into that because I've talked, um, I, I spoke about this at the research conference. So the recipients of the largest um, bodies of correspondence, 58 letters and 128 letters respectively, are her agent John Burden for the um, mid-1650s and Captain George Matthew, her, her husband's half-brother and the couple's estate manager for the late 1660s and early 1670s. So the Burden letters offer um, remarkable insight on Cromwellian Ireland, especially the challenges Lady Ormond faced as she navigated the uncertainties and complexities um, of the Cromwellian land settlement. 
They reveal the precariousness of her award, the difficulties of dealing with the Irish commissioners um, and with Cromwell himself, the continued vulnerability of her family. Um, her eldest son was imprisoned in the Tower of London um, during this time, for example. And overall, the huge emotional toll inflicted by what was um, um, a long and grueling process. You know, we can kind of really talk about this as um, an incredibly important moment in her, in her life, but she experienced it as incredibly difficult and writes about this. Um, so she sums up her difficult um, experiences in a letter to um, Burden, um, just as she was about to get on the boat um, to come back um, to Ireland. Um, and, and she talks about the, the preceding years as having cast greater difficulties upon me than can be well imagined, but by those who has been a witness of what a laborious and sad time I have had to support myself um, and family. And then she talks about not really wanting much, just to be able to kind of um, have a, enough money um, to, be, to be comfortable and to reward her, those people who um, were so good to her, including um, Burden, um, who is obviously incredibly important to her um, uh, during this period. So another letter-generating crisis faced by the Duchess of Ormond was her husband's dismissal from the Lord Lieutenancy um, in 1668-69, which forms a backdrop to the Matthew letters. These letters address a variety of public and private issues, including her husband and son's fluctuating political positions, um, intrigue against her husband, including an attempt on his life, a variety of Irish and English political matters, as well as gossip from the royal court, family news, including births, illnesses, deaths and marriages, issues around household management, including that of her daughters-in-law, estate management, including the payment of debts, the hiring and firing of servants, the organisation of repairs and improvements, tenancy agreements, um, and many, many other topics. This is a huge correspondence, 128 letters, um, and it's impossible to choose a letter that represents its remarkable diversity, so I'll just choose a couple of my um, current favourites. Um, I just really want to give you a taste of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the letter. So, um, so this is one, um, her opinion of the Earl of Orrery, who was incredibly um, uh, uh, um, valuable um, uh, as a patron in the 1650s. Um, by 1668, she wasn't so keen um, on him. She describes him um, as uh, having been or, or being the most false and un- ingrateful person. Then she changes that to man, for some reason, living. Um, uh, and then this is a response to a budding Mormon poet. Um, there, um, this is to George Matthew. There is um, a poor madwoman, Kate Fox, that torments me with begging letters and verse and the strangest superscriptions in the same style that ever was seen. I pray give her four stone of the cast will and two or three barrels of corn if there be any, upon condition that she writes verses to me no more. <laughs> it's the only reference, so I don't know if that is the case, and I haven't found any of those letters. But more important is the extensive evidence provided by the Matthew letters that the Duchess took a leading role in the management of the family's Irish lands. And they show off her aptitude for business, intricate knowledge of the family's Irish estates. Um, and I'm not the only one that, who have um, kind of argued that probably more so than her husband, actually. I'm in a careful management of the family's sprawling estate. They also indicate um, the wide range of duties and responsibilities attached to her varied roles as landowner, heiress, wife, vicerine, duchess, mother and grandmother. And by giving us sustained access to Lady Ormond's routine activities over a five-year period, they offer remarkable insight on her day-to-day life. Overall, the correspondence reveals that the um, duchess's abiding concern with her family's honour and reputation and illuminates her part in preserving its good name, name at a time when it was most under threat. And what I also find striking about this correspondence is the amount of time 
debt appears as a word, debt and clamour, this idea that people are talking about it that, and they have to, have to manage their, rep, their reputation in those kinds of ways. So the Matthew and Burden letters represent the largest subsets of the Duchess of Ormond's correspondence, but there is much else of interest in the collection. Probably my favourite group of letters is the correspondence Lady Ormond secretly sends to her husband from Dunmore House when he is in exile and the conditions of her settlement bar her from making contact uh, with him. In these letters, she writes under the pseudonym MJH, whom she styles as a male friend of her unnamed husband. The letters mainly concern the education in Paris of their youngest um, uh, son, John, and the separate marriage negotiations for her eldest daughter, Elizabeth, um, and her eldest son, Thomas, Earl of Austria, the latter of which her husband approved and she strenuously opposed. For me, what is particularly interesting is the power struggle um, between husband and wife that is played out in, in these letters um, and registered materially as much as in the language um, of the text. So they've been apart for, you know, eight years at this stage. She's kind of owns the, the land, is managing the land. And then, but then her husband and son expect her to send loads of money over to, um, to make this marriage um, possible and she isn't too happy about it. Um, uh, but, uh, but I love, um, if, you know, in um, early modern letters, the signature um, d- as a sign of deference should be as it is in this side, um, down at the corner um, of the, uh, the bottom of the, um, of the page. And so that's whenever she's writing as Elizabeth Ormond to her husband. And literally in May 1660, a couple of months earlier, she's um, J.H. and she's sticking her, um, her signature right up at the top. Um, uh, but of course, that wouldn't be enough if it wasn't also um, evident in what she's writing um, in the text as well. And the use of pseudonyms in these letters also extends to family and friends. As an editor, it's been fun to turn detective in order to identify some of the figures um, mentioned. And often she uses um, different pseudonyms for the same uh, person. And so she calls herself at one point Mrs. Old Mrs. Rashley, um, which I, I quite like. So the JH letters are found among the car papers in the Bodleian Library, which is one of the two main repositories of manuscripts relating to the Ormond Butler family. But if we move from the car to the Clarendon papers, also in the Bodleian, we find another materially interesting letter written by the Duchess of Ormond. Um, this is a letter to Catherine of Braganza, which I think was written after the Queen's mis- or one of the Queen's miscarriages in 1663. Um, it's the only letter that retains evidence of the Duchess's use of silk um, or floss in the seal, um, which um, James Daybill, um, the, the letter um, a scholar, um, suggests added a personal or emotive touch to the sealing of correspondence. Um, only for the Queen, it seems, does the Duchess um, pull out all the stops. Um, another letter to an important historical figure um, is... Uh, Lady Ormond's well-known petitionary letter to, um, to Oliver Cromwell, um, uh, dated 6th of May, um, uh, 1652. It took me a while to track down this letter, um, uh, which is in the Society of Antiquaries um, in London, but it was worth it just for the black seal, the, the morning seal, which I, I think is um, interesting. And I've kind of, I've wondered, is this a subversive flourish um, that, that she is uh, trying to, uh, she's registering materially um, uh, her, um, her, her mourning for, for Charles I? I don't really know um, the, the length of mourning period and whether that, that, would, um, that would work, but it is interesting um, nonetheless. So other letters have been located off the beaten track. One example is correspondence written in 1666 to a family friend, Colonel William Legg, who was acting as a broker for the proposed marriage of the Duchess's youngest son, John, to the heiress, Elizabeth Malley. Um, the letter shed light on the extreme delicacy of aristocratic um, marriage negotiations. This one ultimately failed, actually. Um, they also have this um, 
evidence um, of the Duke of Ormond's literary pretensions, the only one that I, I find that um, she, uh, the Duchess writes, um, let her cousin know um, that my lord, the Duke, is resolved since he cannot dance at her wedding, he will prepare a ballad and send it her and he hopes it is a good one as that he made for her at um, Moor Park. Um, so this is um, a man who actually was engaging in writing ballads, but it seems that his wife wasn't too impressed um, by his abilities. Um, so research into the immediate circumstances of the leg correspondence opened up the culture of the Restoration Court for me in really exciting ways and took me to the London stage, to the Earl of Rochester um, and to Pepys, um, uh, who writes of the, of the Ormond family. Um, to the circles in which the Ormond um, Butler family moved to court. And I have a kind of tendency to locate them in, in Ireland, but actually they were right at the hub of um, kind of uh, uh, London social life. So, and from the glittering world of Restoration London, the correspondence also moves to Limerick City Council and to legal disputes about salmon weirs. So this is a series of um, letters to the Duchess's um, paternal cousin, Sir George Preston and his wife, which are undated but seem to come from the 1680s. But even in this most mundane of letters, interesting issues emerge, and not just about the patronage connections she maintained with her press and kin throughout her life. So the loyalty um, that she can demonstrate in 1630 is, is sustained, um, and, and this is an example I really love. Um, she writes to, um, to George Preston, um, to prevent any report that might make you believe your daughter to be cast away, I have taken the first opportunity to assure you that she is safe, will preserve by no less than a miracle, the ship wherein she was being wrecked um, upon on the western coast and she brought on shore upon a man's back. So a wonderful um, example of, um, of rescue from, uh, um, um, from shipwreck. As I, I mentioned in the discussion after um, the, the previous paper, this is a woman who's absolutely obsessed with sea travel and the dangers of sea travel and that comes up again and again throughout her letters. So the present letters are located in the Ross papers in Castle, County Offaly, and the leg letters are found in the Dartmouth papers in Staffordshire Record Office, and they indicate the new insight and perspectives that can be found simply by looking beyond the family papers. No doubt the Ormond and Carp papers are the most important repositories of the Duchess of Ormond's letters, but if we remain here, her epistolary output appears somewhat insular. Material in other repositories instead indicate the remarkable range and scope of her epistolary activities. There's no better example than the British Library, um, where letters found among the additional manuscripts, um, letters written mainly to Sir Edward Nicholas, Secretary of State to Charles I and II, open up her experience of royalist exile in Cayenne um, and highlight her involvement in royalist intelligence networks at a time when her husband continued to fight for the royalist cause in Ireland. And this impression is strengthened further if we add letters um, from the Hastings Irish Papers, um, letters to John Bramwell, um, Bishop of Derry and others, um, and these are found in the Huntington Library. And I've no doubt that there are other letters out there ready to extend, refine or challenge my reading of the Duchess of Ormond's life and letters. So, um, to conclude then. Um, the letters of the Duchess of Ormond represent the largest body of extant writing by any woman who lived in 17th century Ireland. Gathering and arranging her correspondence in one volume creates something of an epistolary life narrative for this impo most important Irish noblewoman, and one that is fundamentally shaped by the accidents of survival and recovery. Individual letters illuminate how Elizabeth Ormond wanted to represent herself in a particular moment into a specific correspondent, and bringing her very correspondence together reveals just how carefully she scripted herself through her letters. The volume thus illuminates the many different faces of the Duchess of Ormond. Overall, the picture that emerges is a woman who was shrewd, even um, tempered um, and clever. 
So I hope that my edition of the letters will facilitate and encourage further research on this remarkable woman. Aspects of her life that require further scrutiny, I think, include her relationships with her wide network of female friends and relations. Many of the women writers who have received critical attention from scholars in the last 20 or 30 years, Catherine Ranla, Catherine Phillips, Mrs. Briver, Dutch Dorothy Osborne and Fanshawe, they all write of their interactions with the Duchess of Ormond and deeper examination of these relationships would be very valuable. There could also be more research on her relationships with the women in her family, two daughters, four daughters-in-law, several granddaughters, her mother, mother-in-law and sisters-in-law, um, who are mentioned throughout her correspondence, um, but, but uh, none of the letters so far I've been able to find. Although I suspect if I go into their family papers, um, uh, 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 there might be some uh, material there. In general, there could be more attention to all the women in the Ormond Butler family um, network, including, um, including her close friend Anne Hume, later Matthew, and following the recent biography of her father and my, abrition, my additions bringing delight of letters to her paternal cousin, um, attention to the Duchess of Ormond's Scottish connections also has the potential to be richly rewarded. And her press and identity is important to her and she uses the, the press and unicorn in her seal um, in, in, in many of her letters. The period between her parents' death and her marriage needs to be further scrutinised with particular atten- attention to her agency as a young heiress. The Ormond papers contain numerous letters to her from figures including Lord and Lady Esmond and indicate the network of connections that were competing for her service. Unfortunately, no letters written by her appear to be extant for this formative period, although something of the confidence with which she handled her new role as owner of a massive Irish estate is suggested in the responses of her correspondence. Her life in the 1640s and 50s could be also analysed in much more depth. Her relief efforts in the 1641 rebellion are well represented, but her interaction with the Catholic Confederates, including some of her own kin and the wives of her kin, um, could be further interrogated. Her activities during her exile in Cayenne, especially her involvement in royalist intelligent networks, is in need of um, quite urgent attention. And also requiring further examination is her engagement with Cromwell's government in the 1650s. Um, it's also her correspondence is also patchy for the vice regal period of the early 1660s. Really, really frustratingly, um, further examination of her involvement in the cultural activities of this time and her role as patron of literature and the arts would be very valuable. Um, and her apparent patronage of James Shirley in the 1630s um, would be a good place to start. So, as scholarly inquiry into women and the cultures of early modern Ireland continues. Our understanding of the importance of the Duchess of Ormond and our appreciation of the value of women's um, epistolary writing can only deepen. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.